Today's podcast discussion is about how to transform yourself into a linchpin and the importance of being indispensable in the connection economy. Sadly, some of the rules of the industrial economy are still at play. Companies structured that way are designed to have interchangeable parts, which doesn't quite fit with an employee being indispensable. Luckily, however, you can today find out how to switch that dynamic by becoming a linchpin. You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. Yes, so thank you for the message this morning. I popped it up on Facebook. Uh, Today we are going to talk a little bit about Seth Godin and his book, Lynchpin, and your beliefs as well as his in uh, making yourself indispensable. Well, that's right. And we've talked about, uh, well, we've talked at some uh, length about my intellectual heroes collectively in the last uh, five or six weeks. And I thought uh, as the weeks unfold, what we might want to do is perhaps drill down specifically on uh, certain writings or ideas of uh, of each of uh, the intellectual heroes that I've got that have contributed to the business model that has materialized over the last six or seven years and and, uh, and have a conversation about those. So Mm. today... um, uh, the idea of becoming indispensable, which uh, runs from the from a book by Seth Godin called uh, Lynchpin. Mm. Now, um, you, I don't know if you've had chance to have a look at it yet, but I sent you an article in Forbes uh, where they yeah. did a, a review of the book and, well, a review of sorts, I guess. And um, the writer, uh, although he admitted to loving Seth Godin and the uh, and and the the man himself in the way that he writes, uh, he had some issues with the idea of being indispensable. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there you go, right? So uh, this is what's so great about Seth Godin, right? Seth will lay out uh, what he's thinking about things and um, and articulate it in uh, in his writings. Um, and you know he makes the point that you know you should try to make yourself indispensable. Now, when you become indispensable, if you're operating your own business as I am, that converts itself into an amazing proposition because if you are truly indispensable, then your future is guaranteed. Mm. The point that uh, he makes in terms of being a, uh, an employee and being indispensable mm. is the fact that you know companies in the industrial economy are structured in such a way as to have interchangeable parts. Um, and if you've got interchangeable parts, in a sense, you become a threat to the company because if you are indispensable, then uh, then the company is completely wholly and uh, totally reliant upon you. So I think the Forbes article, he, you know, the, the the guy, and I did read it by the way. Um, you know, he makes he makes a fair point where he says if if you make yourself indispensable, you actually become a threat to the company. In a sense, what you're going to do is put a gun to your head mm. because no company is going to allow any individual to be able to hold the fortunes of the company hostage to you know the uh, the contribution of that individual mm. which is which is you know fair comment however you know my my view is that uh, we're living in a, in a connection economy not an industrial economy uh, and as you're uh, you're thinking about your proposition going forward as a business owner you have to make yourself indispensable and um uh, the threat of uh, of an employee, in a sense, becoming so indispensable in the connection economy uh, is less and less relevant, I feel, because uh, there's uh, so many different ways to um, 
you know, construct the hierarchy of your business to this, to the effect that you don't have to worry about individuals being indispensable to that degree. It's the, it's the entity, the enterprise, the proposition that's indispensable, not individuals. Having said that, you know, uh, if you are able to nurture any particular individual in your connection economy business to the extent that there's such an amazing performer, uh, then, you know, all to the good, but, mm. you know, savvy business ownership and management suggests that you never allow any individual to become indispensable nonetheless. So I think it's a moot point. Mm. So the Forbes article really does speak to industrial economy logic, not connection economy logic. Um, I've got a, lot of, got a lot of respect for the for, for the view, but uh, you've got to look uh, forward into the connection uh, world, not the, uh, not the uh, industrial world, as that writer did. And do you think that he, uh, Seth Godin, is really talking more to entrepreneurs and business owners being indispensable to their customers? Rather than an employee tool. Well, in, well, in, in the book, he's making he's making the point that in, indispensability is um, is a completely laudable um, thing or end in of itself. Uh, of course, if you're managing a business, you want to make sure that any no single individual is ever going to make themselves so uh, important to it that the business is going to re- be totally reliant upon it. Mm. But having said that, you know, which business owner do, do you know, Jason, that would um, uh, would discourage you know any individual uh, employee to become the best that they could possibly be and contribute to you know the best possible uh, end that they can in that business because those are the perfect employees the trick of course is good management and not to allow and it's any individual to be able to uh, to all the fortunes of, the, of your company hostage sure i think it's that uh, that uh, double-sided coin of you want all of the attributes of somebody who's indispensable without them believing that your business wouldn't run without them because that then just brings a negative connotation to it. So in in your in yeah. your in your business, what have you applied to make yourself indispensable to your tribe? Well, it's one of those things indispensability is not something that I think ultimately you well, let, let, let me back up a little bit. When I set off, I didn't set off with the idea that I was I was going to seek to make myself indispensable. But after about, what well, was about three years ago, uh, I had an incident over Christmas where, um, for one reason or another, all our, websites, all our websites went down for about eight days. Ooh, I remember that. Hit with a WordPress, with a WordPress vulnerability. And, and when we went down, um, I got a flurry. I got about 80 emails over the course of the week. When's the website back up? When's the website back up? When's the website back up? Because what had happened <clears throat> in the intervening years is that, uh, you know, whilst we've been publishing over time and producing content that helps answer questions and solve problems and all the rest of that good stuff, um, there was the tribe that was building and they were increasingly, you know, going to the website in anticipation that they're always going to be able to get all everything that they needed uh, to help them with their immigration issues by being on our websites. So lo and behold, through no fault of our own, when the websites went down, uh, we got inundated with uh, with emails from, from parties saying, when's the website back? up hmm. uh, and it came became clear to me at that point my goodness me we've actually achieved linchpin status because there's the 70 80 people here that find us indispensable so you know as i say i learned that really sort of uh, via the back door that we become uh, become indispensable and, uh, and and then it alerted me to the fact that uh, uh, seth was completely on the ball when he talks about um, you know becoming indispensable and uh, and that's what we were able to achieve in that guise Mm. Now, one one of the other um, 
facets that you're de- de- uh, developing is developing a monopoly. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, well, the idea behind building a monopoly is to um, create create such a compelling proposition that uh, people want to deal with you and they don't want to deal with anybody else. So I guess um, monopoly status ultimately might uh, might might result from becoming indispensable. Um, but again, this is all about. Seth Golden really just about articulating his, his acute understanding of the dynamics of the connection economy and the things that uh, that will result if you uh, if you go about doing it the right way. Mm. The uh, the connection economy, as we discussed ad nauseum, is all about relationships. Um, the industrial economy is all about process system. It's all about um, policies. It's all about um, businesses really sort of having their organizational structure designed for the benefit of the of the business and not for uh, not for the, uh, the the party that wants to have a relationship with that business so um, we've discovered in in Hong Kong immigration that if you answer people's questions and help them solve problems and, uh, and give them all the information that they need to make informed decisions about uh, you know how to go about uh, addressing uh, the challenges that they're facing in the particular area that you've got an expertise in if you publish to that niche uh, and you make all your information available for free uh, you shift the ground from underneath the uh, the feet of your competition uh, and uh, and who pe- people want to deal with you rather than deal with anybody else and therefore you, you forge the basis of uh, of a monopoly and uh, and, and aligned with that of course is the the notion of indispensability to boot mm. now if you if you talk in the connection economy about it all being about relationships what can those relationships withstand when you are required to change your prices? Well, you know that's a great that's a great question. Um, we uh, we, uh, we we've obviously increased our prices over the course of the last seven years and met no price pricing resistance whatsoever. But part of part of the dynamic of building a monopoly is to have such an irresistible proposition, and and have indeed an irresistible offer. And our irresistible offer is a two hundred percent money back guarantee. So when you count away the um, you know the totality of your proposition uh, versus the the pricing, as long as it's Within you know within reach of your market and uh, and it's designed in such a way that uh, um, people would want to transact with you because it is so compelling, uh, then price price challenges just 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 disappear. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, let, let me let me point that back at you, right? If somebody came along and said to you, "Okay, Jason, please buy this car off me. The price is a hundred dollars." Um, and uh, uh, that's that that that's just you know to take it. Pay it, pay, and then uh, you know drive it away. Or the price is two hundred dollars. But if you um, have a uh, if you have a breakdown in the first uh, the first you know one month, or if there's any challenges that uh, present itself within one month, um, then we will not only uh, fix it for you, but we will uh, also cover the cost of uh, you not having you know that vehicle available to you. We'll cover the cost of a rental car, uh, or we'll uh, you know we'll drive you around, or we'll do what we need to do until the, the, the car is back on the road. But it's it's now going to cost you one hundred and fifty dollars. Which option would you take, the $100 option or the $150 option? If you started off in your own mind, that you're probably going to pay about $200 for something you know, like that anyway. Well, you, you know, you said many years ago to me, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who don't like to pay and those who like to pay. I have always uh, not been afraid of paying, but what I do demand is peace of mind. And I would buy the yeah. more expensive peace of mind option. 
exactly uh, that's, so, you that's know, my pra- nature in, in, indeed and, and and not everybody's going to go for that because there are always going to be people that just want to pay the, the lowest amount of price mm. you know the, the lowest price that they can pay and, and that, that, that there's nothing wrong with that but your intention is to build an irresistible offer and so that it makes it you know completely seamless for them to transact with you it makes it essentially a no-brainer mm. really for them to, uh, to to pay the price that you're asking now, one of the one of the other things you've said to me over the years is that uh, you have had occasion where you've had to give double money back, and you've never seen it as a loss. You've always seen it as an asset. And uh, explain that a little bit more. Well, okay. So it, go, it goes like this, right? In order to offer, as we do, a two hundred percent money back guarantee, you have to have a very high level of confidence in your capabilities, and so you're able, as an expert in your particular niche, to assess the circumstances you've got before you, and you, you know that that you know you can actually get the outcome that the customer's you know ready to pay for. So when the customer comes into it, the customer doesn't have your expertise, doesn't have your know-how. That's the, they're dealing with you. You know, for that very reason. So the only party in that relationship who can assess the risk in this instance is me, not the customer. So when I when I uh, put myself in um, you know in the position where where I offer a double a double your money back guarantee, you know I've got a very very high level of confidence that I'm never going to going to have to deliver on that. But let's say that, for example, out of 100 transactions that I that I put out there, where I've I've gone through the risk assessment process, and I'm I'm very very confident that you know there's a there's a almost 100% chance that all those 100 uh, applications are going to get approved. Um, if it just so happens that let's say two of them get refused, that means that I've actually had 98 people that have paid me you know my full fee have been happy to transact with me because they know damn well that i'm going to give them everything that i possibly can in order to get the solution that they've come to me for mm-hmm. and for those two people that uh, as it happens don't go on to get approved so i have to give double my money back give double the money back right so that means essentially what i've done is i've been able to get 96 full paying customers uh, that have transacted with me without a moment's hesitation Knowing that actually, for ultimately, the cost of four of them, even though there's only two because I'm giving double your money back, the cost of four of those cases are actually going to have to be, you know, uh, the money's given back. Of course, I've got the um, about the cost of uh, of delivering the service as well. So let's say that when you factor in the cost of delivering the service, it's another hundred percent on top of that. So essentially, what I've done is I've been able to get. 90, 90 out of the, the revenue from, from 90 customers out of delivering essentially 100 services. But for all practical purposes, every single one of those 90 who's given me their money have never had a moment's hesitation about transacting with us. So I've never had to worry about price. I've never had to worry about competition. I've just never had to worry about anything because it's an irresistible offer. Well, that's a pretty good strike rate, right? And in any event, if I um, if I have to give money back and I'm and I'm actually publishing for free as I do using WordPress, then for all practical purposes, the, the cost of giving the money back is just the cost of marketing, which I don't have to incur anyway. So, mm. you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a virtuous web if you get my drift. Mm. Okay. Um, and if we go back to the idea that it's a relationship and you are unable to deliver a service and it's beyond your control, what then happens to that relationship? Because yours well, is obviously a I unique do, proposition I, in that you offer a visa service. So yeah, 
Yeah, so we go through a risk assessment process with every single client that comes before us and, and we make a determination as to you know whether we think we can really deliver the outcome. We make it very clear to the customer what's expected of them in order for us to be able to deliver on the outcome. But I can tell you, Jason, you know, on the few occasions that I've had to give money back, I just give it back irrespective of where the fault lies. I mean, it's just the value, the value in having a, an untarnished, unblemished record in the marketplace it's just not worth having arguments with 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 customers who haven't delivered on their side just give them the double their money back and just move on mm. um because you you walk away with with, with a reputation with your reputation intact um and uh, on on the five or six occasions in the last few years where we've had to give money back i think it's fair to say that three or four of them have, have actually referred other customers to us because of the you know the respected way that we've treated them mm. so uh, it, it's win-win but uh, it's counterintuitive People don't understand it, but that's the beauty of the connection economy, right? Word spreads. Mm. And and do you think that principle would apply across other businesses? Well, I mean, we're, yeah, this, this is this is the beauty of, uh, of the connection economy, you know, and the environment that uh, it, it engenders for the creation of, of, of business propositions. You get the opportunity to disaggregate and reaggregate value um, because of the nature of the connection economy. It means you can come up with something that's unique and interesting. You, as a business owner, will understand your niche incredibly well, better than anybody else. And and if you if you take on board the general ideas that we've enunciated in in you know our intelligent content marketing website and, and the whole idea of intelligent content marketing, and you apply those ideas you know against your expertise in your niche and your understanding of how that market works, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to come up with something that uh, that, that that would suggest that these um, these concepts and the ideas that we've got uh, uh, in our proposition are equally applicable. Uh, in others there's kind of some businesses where uh, the way that we've applied the intelligent content marketing ideas to our business um, will not work because of the nature of what you do mm. but I think it's fair to say that if you're if you're delivering any kind of service um, there's a very good chance that these ideas will uh, will, will be readily applicable to um, you know to a way that you operate. But I think we may have discussed this a little bit last week. Mm. Right? There's some there's some some areas of economic activity that, that are just apples and oranges, and they're just not going to work. Retail, for example. Although having said that, you know there are ideas, there are things that you can do with retail if you're um, um, you know if you're, you're a little bit creative about matters and you're prepared to niche down particularly. But having said that, um, not every uh, area is going to be suitably applicable. But uh, you know the world is changing and you've got to you've got to move on, right? And if nothing else, um, I would hope that uh, you know what we share with Intelligent Content Marketing, the website there, is at least you know going to make other business owners. Um, or give other business owners pause for thought um, and let them appreciate that the world is changing and uh, and if nothing changes, nothing changes. So who knows, it would be great if um, you know somebody uh, comes along our website and uh, takes the ideas of a pipe that have been applied in, the, in a professional service um, uh, niche uh, and then can see that uh, they could be applied in other niches that, uh, that are not related to professional services uh, and they come up with a, with a variation on the theme. Um, that's a major win for me because as Seth Golding says, ideas that spread, win. Um, I've just received a question actually via WhatsApp. Have you, and, and I know how your business model works, so I'd rather let you uh, you answer the question. Have you ever been in the situation when you haven't been paid uh, by a client uh, after the service has been rendered? 
Uh, yeah, two or three times, and you know what can you do? You you, you do your normal sort of you know try and chase them and uh, uh, and, and seek to get paid. But uh, I'm not in the business of litigating against anybody. I mean, our fees are our, our maximum fee is about three thousand US dollars, and if a client is genuine, genuine, genuinely not you know, going to pay because they've got their own reasons not to pay. Uh, I just move on and uh, and realize that, you know, at some stage in the future, if they have other other issues in relation to immigration, they no longer have access to our expertise and we'll, we will not be in a position to help them. Mm. There's, there's always going to be some people that for one reason or another just don't want to pay you. Mm. Having said that, Jason, you know, part of um, yeah, one of the advantages of having a 200% money back guarantee is that uh, you, you get paid up front. And so we generally don't engage until we've got their money in our bank bank account mm. and that's the quid pro quo yeah um you, you spoke uh, about um your money back guarantee i'll give you an example of uh, what i experienced a little while ago now uh, marks and sparks have always had a a, yeah. a great policy of if it doesn't fit bring it back and they just change it no questions asked no nothing um and I bought some uh, gifts for my father a little while ago. And uh, like a Muppet, I bought all the wrong sizes. Um, so I took it back to Woolies. I don't keep slips. So I never had the slip. I said, there's the bag. The, actually, I didn't even have the bag. I put everything in one of those like birthday bag things. And I just took it in. And uh, there wasn't even a question. They even helped me find the right sizes of the products. It was, as always, a good experience. And then um, I bought a mate of mine uh, some clothes for his birthday uh, from a shop that's up here in the mountains. And when, uh, again, I bought the wrong bloody sizes. I seem to have a problem with that. Um, and I took it back into the shop and I didn't have the slip and their computers were offline. Uh, the woman remembered me and uh, had the clothes that hadn't been worn. They just didn't fit. And she said, no, you can't change them because you don't have the slip. And I said, but you and I had a conversation about my credit card number. Uh, actually, what they want to do is they want to put your credit card number on their computer system, which I uh, I didn't allow them to do for obvious reasons. Um and she said, yeah, I remember we had a conversation. It was last week, uh, but still, no, you can't change your clothes. So I said, but I bought these from you and they don't fit. I want exactly the same things. And uh, all I want is a bigger size. And we had this backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Eventually, they changed them, but I'll never walk back into that shop again. It could have been such an easy transaction, and yet it became so difficult. Um it's because because they put they they put the interests of the company first and not your interests first, which is stupid. Because they're in business to actually have relationships with people. They want people to come in and actually transact with them and part with their money in exchange for goods. Mm. So why make it difficult to transact with uh, transact with you? It's just completely counterproductive, and that's classic industrial economy logic and not connection mm. economy logic. And if you think about it, right. You know the, co the 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 cost of the goods that they uh, that they supply to you. If you didn't retail, they were probably on a hundred hundred percent, maybe two hundred percent markup. I mean, it's difficult to sort mm. of set a gauge completely. But you know, if you think if you think that uh, their cost of goods, including getting it, um, you know, shipped and displayed in the store, was a third of the price that you uh, that you paid. So you know, what's their risk in actually you know doing what they needed to do in order to to make you happy, so that you know you would definitely choose them next time rather than going somewhere. 
else. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff is just lead, lead, leading themselves open for the competition to come and steal a march from them. So in the industrial economy, you could get away with that nonsense. But in the connection economy, you can't anymore because you're going to come out of that uh, experience. And you're just, you know, one Facebook post away of telling everybody that you know what a, sh- what a very poor experience you've had there. And what's that going to uh, do for that business going forward? Completely counterproductive. Mm. And and with and, and your thoughts on all of these platforms where people do have the ability to voice uh, their thoughts, uh, worthwhile or not? Dangerous? Uh, no, no, because you know every, most people are before they go and they embark on a, on a on a purchase, they're going to do their research and they're going to try and de-risk. Um, you know the decision that they're making in regard to that expenditure, and uh, and if there's you know anything to be found on the internet, which are, irrespective of where you might find it, that speaks negatively to um, you know an experience that somebody's had with that business, it's going to it's going to put you off, right? Mm. Uh, you know, you and I both travel quite a lot, um, and I've I've always used an online platform to book hotels. And I will read the reviews. I'll have a look at the hotel. But even if there's a negative review, it doesn't bother me. What the most important thing for me is the response of the hotel to the comment. How do you how do you engage online? Uh, yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that completely. Um, there's two sides to every story, and I'm, I'm interested to see what the um, you know the party that's the, the, that's being um, that's being moaned about. What has their response been? To, because that speaks to their attitude towards solving problems. How how if I encounter any problems, that's going to be solved in the future. Mm. So yeah, I agree with you. It's not so much the um, the fact that somebody's made a complaint because you know any anybody can um, any keyboard warrior can get on the get on the internet and moan about something. It's it's really about you know what the party that you're going to be transacting with has to say about it mm. but to take that point you know i agree i agree with you i think i think one of the one of the ways that uh, uh the world's car hire industry could really improve their lot is the way that you get treated as a customer at the point of checking in a in a uh, into hire a car um i did this with uh, with europa car again and for my sins and i don't know why i did it when i uh, when i arrived in england this time i i, I pre-booked a car via the web uh, and you know i looked for a vendor that was going to basically promise me there was not going to be any any hidden surprises you know at the point of check-in and love Lo and behold, irrespective of all the all the representations that were made at the point of, of, of paying by credit card on the web, pre-booking the, uh, the car, there wasn't going to be any extra charges, there wasn't going to be any, any shenanigans. All I wanted to do was to present my driver's license. You know, and present um, present the papers that they needed in order for for me to be able to complete the hire, and then get the keys and get on with it. But no. When I got there, there was this, there was that, and this didn't apply, and that didn't apply. So here I am having a conversation with a, with a customer service agent, and I'm thinking, this, they've done it all again. What's so hard about forging a transaction when you're renting a car where you can have a very simple, this is what you're paying for, and this is what you get, and then you can make a decision at the point of purchasing via the web that, 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 that you know what you see is what you get, and that's it. What's so hard about that? Why does it always have to be a case of, you know, what you promised on the web is completely uh, offset with what you're experiencing when you pick up the keys? Every time I've hired a car, it's been the same old, same old thing. Simple point of differentiation, I believe, for any car hire company is to say, you know, state it bold wherever you are. What you see is what you get, period. 
Mm. Doesn't happen. Stupid. Great opportunity for disruption. Now, uh, tell me when you're heading back to Hong Kong. Uh, Sunday morning, and I'll be as I leave. I leave Manchester Sunday morning, and I'll be back in Hong Kong at seven o'clock uh, Monday morning, and uh, straight into a full day of meetings, all the normal stuff. So we'll be speaking from Hong Kong this time next week, sir. Fantastic! Thanks very much for your time this morning. We'll catch up again next week from Hong Kong. Digital Bacon FM. Now that you know more about how to be indispensable, join Jason and I in the next podcast discussion to find out more about tribes and how to create your own. Music